0: Yeah, sit in the middle. This is better. All right, grab a seat. We're going to go ahead and get started here. Or keep talking. That works as well. Ooh, I like it. I I am currently working off of about... Four hours of sleep. We, um, all of us that have gone have, have gotten jet lagged to the point where now we're waking up about three or four in the morning each morning. So I've been up for a while. Happy afternoon to most of you. Um, uh, but so grateful for the time that we were able to go. Missed you a ton. Uh, we had a great time though. There's something about being in the land where the scriptures actually took place that helps bring them to life, makes them 3D. And there, there were a number of things number of moments where God's word came alive for me in Israel. One of them was when I was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee uh, one morning. I, I would get up around, well, I was waking up there around 3.30 in the morning as well. So I finally got myself out of bed around five and, and was down there to watch the sunrise over Galilee and I was reading the book of Mark, and there's that section in there towards the beginning where Jesus is walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees a couple of brothers who are tending their nets because they're fishermen, and he says, hey, come follow me, which is this invitation to discipleship. And as I'm reading that, I look up, and there's a couple of guys who are inflating a boat so they can go out and fish, and there were these poles that I knew Jeff would just be salivating over if he saw it. And it was as if in that moment Scripture came alive, I'm like, should I go ask him to come hang with us? or I didn't. Uh, there was another moment where we got to walk uh, from the top of Mount Arbol. This is one of those moments where I became like a, like the fat kid in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when he's like let into the chocolate factory. It's like, oh my goodness, and I'm gonna go like. I was jumping around like a a, a child and we were walking along. Can we, do we have a picture of it? Actually, this is Mount Arbol. So this is this big granite monolith that just kind of sits right out overlooking the sea of Galilee. And we started from the top of that thing. And because this is where Jesus would have walked. The reason that he would have walked along the top, the, the kind of high ground which was a lot of work to get to and a lot of work to get down from is because all along the, the walls of this and all of the canyons there's caves and you would have had robbers and thieves and stuff that would have been sitting in those caves looking for easy pickings walking along The valleys, And so Jesus and his disciples and a lot of the Jews who were making the trek from the Galilean region down towards Jerusalem would have walked along the high places. So we got a chance to walk in the footsteps of Jesus along what's known as the Jesus Trail. And as we were walking down from this and we zigzagged down and then through, you may not be able to see it in this picture, but there, these fields are just covered in wild mustard, beautiful. They're having a uh, super bloom in Israel, just like they are here. So it was much like walking through Back Bay. And as we were walking along, it dawned on me. I could have easily seen Jesus walking along, you know, in the lee of this massive granite mountain and running his hands along the flowers. And he plucks one of them and he he looks at the mustard seed and he kind of looks back to his disciples and goes, you know, guys, if your faith is the size of one of these mustard seeds, you can tell the mountain to go throw itself in the sea and it would comply. And I realized in that moment that so much of what we read in Scripture, it was along the way teaching for Jesus. In those Gospels, so much of it was just whatever was in front of him, he pointed to it and he used it to, to articulate true theological, you know, truth. It was wonderful. And so Scripture really was coming alive. I won't go into a lot of the other things because I'm sure that it'll, it'll leak out over the course of the next couple of months and years. But one other thing that we got to do that was really fun that I just want to celebrate is we got to baptize some people in the Sea of Galilee. Um, That's LaVon. LaVon got baptized. Um, Greg Lean, my buddy Greg, got baptized there. And I actually, so I was baptized when I was 12, right? And And in the same way that when I got married 14 years ago, I thought I understood what marriage was like. And, And today I have a much different understanding, a much deeper understanding of what marriage is like. I I accepted Christ when I was very young and made that public declaration of, hey, I am following Jesus when I was 12, but uh, I have a much deeper understanding today, and so I decided, you know what? I want to get rebaptized as well. Kind of a, a... a recommitment ceremony if you will but who am I going to have baptize me and what was so fun for me is to have some of my family Jeannie and Charlie and Dee and Connie baptize me because I had the opportunity to baptize Jeannie and and Charlie like four or five years ago and now they were baptizing me I needed four of them because I'm a big guy and I'm hard to get out of the water Um, and and they did hold me under a little bit longer than I think was necessary But, but turnaround's fair play so you know Anyway, it was a fabulous, fabulous trip. I, I am so grateful for the time to go. Thank you for releasing me for that time to go. And again, you're going to hear pieces of that along the way for for months and years to come, I'm sure. But today, we're going to go on a slightly different adventure. We are going to be wrapping up a series on our work. And for those of you who are joining us, who are, you know, just kind of coming in at the tail end of this conversation, this is a conversation we've been having for the last two months It's called Life on Purpose, and it's about how we spend our time. What is it that we are giving our lives to? Why does our work matter? And up to this point in our conversation, we have been looking back, back to the Genesis 1 through 3, back to God's original plan in creating and saying, in light of what he created us to do, how should we understand our work? But... Here's the interesting thing about the Gospels and about the, the New Testament is that the vast majority of them, isn't, the time isn't spent looking back. It's actually spent looking forward in anticipation of what's coming. <clears throat> and so today we are going to look forward as well. And we're going to look at what we have to look forward to in the afterlife and how that influences what we do today. Why, why does our work matter in light of what's coming? Make sense? Okay, so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Second Peter, chapter three. It's right towards the end of your Bible. If you hit first through third John, or if you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. And if you're in Hebrews um, or First Peter, you need to go a little bit further. Because here's the thing: I would imagine for many of you, at some point in this series, you have thought to yourself you probably didn't voice it but you thought to yourself wait a minute why does our work matter why would we spend so much time talking about making this world a more garden-like place if if it's all going to burn in the end anyway right God is going to come back he's going to redeem his people and take us to be with him in heaven for eternity and the rest of this, this planet that we know that is sin's and broken is going to be thrown on the dumpster heap uh, of creation and, and God will be done with it. So why spend so much energy on trying to make this a more garden-like place? Wouldn't it be better if we just got a job so that we could pay our bills and live comfortably, went to church so that we could worship God and, and shared our faith with other people so that they too could go to heaven with us? Wouldn't that be a better way to focus our energy rather than talking about how our work helps move this world forward and even worrying about it? But the reality is, um, you know, that that theology of it's all going to burn, that's built off of a false understanding of something that Peter says in his second letter to the church here in first Peter chapter three. So let's just read the section from which we get this idea that it's all going to burn and then we'll talk a little bit about it. We're going to begin in verse three <clears throat> and understand this. Peter is talking to, to the church kind of assuaging people's concerns when they say, well, wait a minute, Jesus said he was going to come back and it's been decades and he hasn't come back yet. Like what's going on? There's people who are saying he's never coming back. Peter says this, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where where is this coming that Jesus promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of the water and by the water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So there you have it, Eric. We heard it with our own ears. The world will be destroyed. So what's the point? Why try to make this a more garden-like place when it's all going to burn? But what I hope that you heard as we read through that description is that before he starts talking about the world being destroyed by fire, he first pointed back to the days of Noah. Did you hear that part about the waters? The world was created, and through the waters, the world was ultimately destroyed. He used exactly the same term that the world was destroyed in the days of Noah. But we know the story and we know that the world still is here, that we're still on it. And this is the same planet, the same earth that was destroyed supposedly in the flood. And so he's not talking about destruction in the sense of throwing the world out and starting over. He's talking about a restoration, a cleansing. In the flood, God completely cleansed the earth of all of the, the corruption that sin had brought and all of the shame and the guilt and, and the, the, the patina of sin that humanity had wrought upon it. And then he started over. It was almost like a global restart. And he says, in the same way that God did that in the days of Noah, We're looking forward to the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus Christ returns to finish what he began on the cross, to restore God's earth. And when he does that, he will cleanse the earth as well, this time with fire, not with water. And all of that smut and filth and pollution and corruption will be burned up. And all of that's going to happen on the day of the Lord, and, and it could happen at any point, by the way, because Jesus will come as a thief. And 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 Paul, I'm sorry, Peter suggests that this is a good thing, that the earth would be laid bare. Let's let's lean into that word for a second. Look at verse ten. He says, "The day of the Lord." will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Let's lean into that term laid bare for a moment. That term there is the Greek word horisko. And it means to be exposed or to be revealed for what it really is. In other words, the film of filth. The pollution and all of that junk is going to be stripped away. It's going to be stripped down to the studs. And God is going to reveal the earth as he intended it before sin began to corrupt it. Does this make sense? Okay, I hope you're following along. We'll we'll keep leaning in a little bit. Peter suggests this is a good thing, by the way that far from being something we should be terrified of and be like, God, you're so mean for bringing this on the planet, this is, should be something we're looking forward to because, as he suggests in verse 13, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So instead of this planet that we experience where sin and shame and guilt and pain and death have its way, where people hurt one another, where people domineer over one another, where people kill one another. And man, did I get a, a lot of experience with that when I was in Israel, seeing just how much destruction. I, I walked through the, the Holocaust Museum and saw remnants of the six million Jews and homosexuals and, and, and people who, who had been born different from others were massacred simply because they didn't fit into a picture that people had of what the right way to look and the right way to think and the right way to act were. It was horrific and it brought me to tears a number of times. Instead of a world like that, we look forward to a world that is, is marked by Righteousness. Rightness, the way that God intended it to be, where people can coexist with one another in spite of our differences, despite the differences in our skin color or the ways that we think. And he says, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Now let's, let's pause for just a moment. Because when I, when you hear the word heaven in that, in verse 13, I don't want you to think of heaven meaning God's home. Some ethereal place where you know, we spend eternity. I want you to think of Genesis one, because that is absolutely what Peter is pointing towards in Genesis one, one in the beginning, God created what the heavens and the earth and the heavens. There is just the sky, the, 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 solar system, the universe and the, and the earth that we stand on the terrestrial ground. He created all of it. And Peter is absolutely blatantly pointing back to Genesis 1.1 and says, we look forward to the day when God gives us a new one. But the word new there does not suggest new as in something radically different. Like, here's the old earth, throw it out. Here's a new earth. That's not what he's getting at. Because he is pointing more towards a restoration of what was. And so the new earth is a renewed planet where all of the old has been stripped away all of the think of it if you will as when you go and you buy a house that has been left to disrepair the years have been rough on it it has been well used then it has been abandoned the dry rot the the termites have eaten it the the elements have rotted it and this house is decrepit it needs a lot of work if anybody's going to live in it and so you purchase it And you begin to strip it down to its studs. You take out the dry rot. You replace the boards that have been termite eaten and are not able to support the weight of people standing on it. And then once you've gotten it down to the studs, you begin to rebuild it and restore it. And when you're finished, you go, look, it's as good as new, right? That's what Peter is getting at here. The new heavens and the new earth are a restoration of the planet that God made all of those years back and called good. It's a restoration of his planet free of the, the the dry rot of sin, free even of the curses that he intentionally instilled into this planet so that it would turn wandering hearts back towards him. That is what we have to look forward to, and it is good, he suggests. You following me so far? Would you tell me no if you weren't? Good. And this could happen at any moment. This could happen before we make it out of this service today. This could happen before your head hits the pillow tonight. For us who came from Israel around 8 o'clock is when that typically happens. Um, Because the, the day of the Lord could come, will come as a thief in the night when you least expect it. And that term, day of the Lord, is an interesting one. To our Western ears, we're not familiar with it. It's not something we talk a lot about. But to a Jewish ear, that was very familiar. The day of the Lord was almost like the period at the end of one chapter and the beginning of a new chapter. And the old chapter is this life. And the new chapter is the life to come, or what we term, what we talk about as the afterlife. The day of the Lord is when Jesus returns in all of his glory. And he finishes what he began on the cross when he dries every eye and he begins this process of judging the world, separating those who have given their hearts to him and those who have said, no, I want nothing to do with you and allowing them to choose the path that they have chosen by rejecting him. It's the day that this this restoration of everything through the purging of fire and the cleansing of it begins, and it ushers in what we would call the afterlife. But when many of us think of the afterlife, at least here in the West, what we tend to think of is a two-step process. One is, I'm here in this life, in this body, and then I transition, whether because I die, this body gives up the ghost or jesus is going to return and he's going to take me to be with him he's going to you know grab me out of here and remove me to heaven and there we will spend eternity with him that is the western mindset that is the hope that we have and it's a good hope especially in light of jeff whose whose mom just passed away on friday right and whose father, whose, his body is slowly deteriorating. It's a, it's a good hope that we have for Connie who went to Israel not knowing if she would ever see her father alive again. The hope is that the brokenness of his body doesn't get the last word. It's a good hope for Tony who's working off of one lung and every breath is laborious. And the hope is that the brokenness of our bodies, and for those of you who are dealing with cancers and other things like that, or, or, or bodies that ache every single morning or wake you up three or four times in the middle of the night to go to the restroom, right? It, it, whatever it is, this will not get the last word. We have hope that there is something beyond the grave. And because what Jesus did on the cross, we have hope. And that is a good hope. But it's an incomplete Because what we view as a two-step process, life in this body, death or transition, because Jesus comes and eternity spent in heaven with God, with resurrection bodies, is not the full articulation of scripture. That is not the hope that the early Christians held on to. That's a very westernized hope, spending eternity in heaven on clouds that are paved with gold and pearly gates and, and, and playing harps. That is a very westernized thinking, but that is not what the early Christian believers held on to. They held on to something a little more robust and a little more down to earth. Theirs was a three-step process. Life on this sin-scarred planet in these bodies that break down, followed by death or, or the Messiah coming and redeeming them out followed by a time in heaven as God restores and cleanses the planet and prepares these new heavens and new earth for us to come back. And then the resurrection. And this is when it gets interesting. Because they anticipated a physical, bodily resurrection and life spent on this planet. And it wasn't just the early Christian believers that held on to this idea of a physical resurrection. It was the Jews as well. And I saw proof of that when I was in Israel. Can we throw the picture up there for just a moment? <clears throat> this is the Mount of Olives. So on the right side, if you if you could look just to the right of here, would be uh, the, the olive groves where Jesus spent his time praying on the night that he was arrested. Spent a lot of his time like looking in, off to, kind of looking, if this is to my left... And over to the right of the olive groves, then directly in front of us would be Temple Mount. So you're looking directly over Temple Mount. And this is the largest Jewish graveyard on the planet. 70,000 graves that they've been able to count. And since families are gathered together and placed in the same grave, they anticipate that there's something like 300,000 Jews who are buried on the Mount of Olives. Why? Because the Jews are anticipating a physical bodily resurrection when their Messiah returns. They are anticipating that when the Messiah comes, not only will he raise them from the dead, but then they will join him in ruling in the new kingdom that he establishes. That's what the Jews are looking forward to. And the early Christian believers held the same hope. The only difference was they knew who the Messiah was. His name was Yeshua. Yeshua. Jesus, he was God's anointed redeemer. And he'd already come once and he said, yo, I'm going to prepare a place, the new Jerusalem. You're going to be with me forever. I'm coming back. And this was the hope that they had. This was the hope that they held on to during persecution. This is the hope that they held on to when their, their brothers and their sisters and even sometimes themselves were stoned to death. Because they were not willing to recant their faith. A bodily resurrection from the dead. Why does this matter? Because ultimately, if if we are not going to spend eternity in heaven, but we're going to spend it on earth, as the Bible suggests. As if you read the, the last couple of chapters of Revelation, you get this picture of the end times of this new Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens. And alighting back on this planet that God called good all those years ago. And God's people who had been kind of redeemed out of the, the world before he cleanses it, right? There's this, this mass exodus where he grabs all of his people up. And then he begins this cleansing process. And now he brings them back. Which means that are we going to heaven when we die? Yes, we're going to heaven when we die. But we're not going to stay there. Because heaven is not our home. This planet is. Not as it is now. But as it will be. When it's restored. And redeemed. And recreated back to how God intended it. Without the influence and corruption of sin. Without the influence and corruption of sinful humanity. Who has used it and abused it. And even without the curses. This world is our home. And we will spend eternity here alongside God. And listen to, you don't have to turn here, but listen to Isaiah chapter 65 because Isaiah describes these new heavens and these new earth. and Isaiah 65, I'm going to begin in verse 70 This is God speaking, by the way, through his prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Again, hearkening back to Genesis 1-1. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. The brokenness, the pain, the breaking down of our bodies, the breaking down of marriages... The, the misuse of power where people domineer over one another and hurt people in order to improve their own lot in life will be done away with. I'm going to go on in verse 21. These people, my people, will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Now something, I hope, stood out in what we just read in Isaiah's vision of the life to come. And that is all the language of work. Did you notice that? He starts talking about building houses and planting vineyards and tending to them and laboring over them and that they will be able to enjoy the fruit of their labor. And you start going, wait a minute, there's going to be work in the afterlife. I mean, because the way we think about the afterlife here in America in the West is like one long vacation where we do nothing. We just sit back and contemplate our navel. But guys, that's more of a westernized American mindset than it is a biblical Jewish mindset. Or we begin to think that it's going to be one long worship service, right? Have you ever heard it described this way? I remember one of the most popular songs growing up when I was a kid was, I could sing of your love forever. You guys know that song, right? Right? Can I be honest with you? That doesn't get me excited. One long worship service, song after song after song after song after song. <laughs> oh, we're doing Amazing Grace again. Cool. Done this one. I mean, this is like the the the, the elevator ride. This is, doesn't feel like we're going to heaven right now, guys. It feels like we're going the other way. And I don't mean to be rude here, but. I'm convinced that we worship God in more than just songs. I love worship. I love it. But if eternity is spent just singing songs, I don't think that that is fully realizing what God has created us to do. Because we worship him in other ways as well. We worship him in the way that we treat one another. We worship him in the way that we use the things he's given us. And we worship him in the way that we work. Remember back to the Garden of Eden. Back to his formation of Adam and Eve. He did not make them simply to sit in the garden contemplating their navel or lack thereof. He didn't create them simply to sing songs, did he? He made them in his image, in his likeness, so that they might rule over his creation, so that they might join him in moving his world forward in partnership with him in submission to his vision, his plan, his desires. That's what he made humanity to do. And I am convinced that when we get our resurrection bodies that will no longer break down, no longer get sick, we won't spend eternity just singing songs. We will worship in a myriad of ways, singing being one of them. But work will be another, that we will join our Father God and his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in working And before that bums you out, because that could sound, especially for people like Greg, who work really, really hard with their hands and their bodies, you're like, I don't want to spend eternity working. Remember something. This is work that is free of the curse. In Genesis 3, this world was cursed. And the very things we were created to do were cursed. Being fruitful and multiply, cursed. Now we have pain and childbearing. All the ladies said, thank you, Eve. Our our relationships, husband and wife, this partnership was, was cursed. Now it's a power struggle. And the work of our hands was cursed. Now, what should have been life-giving and enjoyable produces thorns and thistles. It's painful. It's laborious. By the sweat of our brows, we, we try to feed ourselves. We try to eke out an existence. And remember, God didn't just curse the world to punish us. It wasn't like he was being punitive. He did it as an act of love because he recognized our tendency as humanity to run after other things to find our satisfaction and fulfillment. And so he cursed the very things he made us to do. And in so doing, he cut a God-shaped hole out of our hearts. And he said, you will never find your fulfillment in those things apart from me. You were created to do life with me. And so long as you are not with me, you will never find satisfaction. But in the new heavens and the new earth, when all of that is gone and the corruption and even the curses are gone... Suddenly, as we work alongside of him, we will find fulfillment and joy. It'll be life-giving and exciting. It'll be something we're excited to get out of bed in the morning if we even sleep. I don't know. You know, it's going to be something we want to give ourselves to, and it will be tailor-made to each of us, and the gifts and abilities and talents that each of us have. We're going to get to work alongside of him, and we're going to get to rest. There's a reason why he instituted the Sabbath. Rest and being present with one another and taking time to just stop and reconnect with God and reconnect with one another is imperative. Here in the West, we don't do it well. It was pretty wonderful being in Israel where there was a very real time when everything shut down. And you basically said, well, I might as well join them in resting because they're not doing anything. We can't go anywhere, so we might as well hang out too. It was so life-giving. Some of my favorite times were the Sabbaths that we had over there. But we've lost that here because we work every day, unless you like to go to, I mean, about the only time we ever experience a Sabbath rest is when you think, I want to go to Chick-fil-A on Sunday, and you're like, oh, they're closed. It's honestly a blessing. It's a reminder. Maybe I should rest too. Anyway, work and rest and relationship, that is what we have to look forward to. And it's good. It won't be just one long worship service. Are you following me now? So I have addressed what life to come. Let's call it life after life after death. Because life after death is spending some time in heaven. And many of our loved ones are there waiting for us. And we will be there too for a time. But it is the first leg on a round trip ticket right back here. To this place that God created and called good. Heaven is not our home. Earth is our home. But I have yet to answer the question. What do we do with work now? In light of eternity. How should we understand the work of our hands? So let's address that for a moment. Three things I want to point out. Number one. Is Paul's answer in Colossians chapter 3. You guys talked about it last week with Jeff. Can we throw Colossians 3 up there for a second? Whatever you do. Work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So number one reason why our work matters today is because you are not working simply for a paycheck and you are not working simply for a human boss. You're working for God. What you do with your time, your talents, your treasures is an act of worship. So worship God through giving it your all. Who cares about how many papers I have to grade? It sucks the life out of me, you teachers are thinking. Do it as if you're doing it for God. Who cares if anybody ever uses the app that I'm designing for their phone? Do it as unto the Lord, as if you're making it for him. Who cares about the buildings that I build? They're all going to burn. They're going to rot. They're going to decay. They're going to be torn down. And the next generation is going to build something new. Do it as unto the Lord. Who cares? I'm retired. I don't even have a job anymore. My job is to care for my spouse or love on my kids or I'm a babysitter. Then love your grandchildren well as unto the Lord. Care for your parents in their old age well as unto the Lord. Raise your children as an act of worship to the Lord. Does this make sense? Because as Paul suggests in here, can we go back for just a second? Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Interesting. So he suggests that there's something tied to our serving and our working for him today that there's some element of an inheritance the new creation eternity all that kind of stuff but i would suggest also he's pointing to that the work of our hands today influences the responsibility in what we receive in the afterlife and you don't have to take that mental leap as the foundation let's let's instead look at what jesus said in several of his teachings and several of these stories that he told stories with purpose in these parables one in particular i want to look at in luke 19 jesus tells the story of a a very wealthy landowner who goes off to be made king over his region and before he leaves he takes 10 of his servants and he gives him a large sum of money he says here take care of this and by the way jesus is telling this story and saying this is what the kingdom of god is like this is what The kingdom of heaven and and, and the way that things work is like 10 servants. They're each given a large sum of money. When the king gets back, he has been made king now. And he, he, he brings his, uh, servants to him so that he might have an accounting of what they've done with the sums that he's entrusted. And the first one comes forward and says, master, I've taken that sum of money and I've made it 10 times as much. And the king says, well done, my faithful servant. You've been faithful with the little. So I'm going to put you in charge of much. Now go and take charge of 10 cities. The next one comes up. Master, I, I've taken that, that sum of money and I've made it five times as great. And he says, well done, my faithful servant. You've been faithful with the little. I'm going to put you in charge of much. Now take charge of five cities. Another one comes up. Master, I know that you're a hard man. You don't like to lose money. And I was afraid I might lose it. So I buried it in the ground. Here you go. Here's your money. Good as new. He says, you wicked, lazy servant. You didn't even put it in the bank to get interest. (sighs) And he takes from that one that only has one and he gives it to the one with 10. The point of Jesus parable. Is that he expects us to do something with what we have been entrusted with. The time, the talents, the energy, the, <clears throat> the resources that he's given us, do something with them, invest them to have kingdom gains to help move my kingdom purposes forward. You have not been blessed with talents. You have not been blessed with the time you've been given. You have not been blessed with the resources that you have simply so you can be comfortable and lazy. So that you can retire and just sit back and do nothing. Invest it to move my kingdom purposes forward. And what I, what I see in this as it stands for our work today and what is coming, is that the reward of working faithfully today is not a mansion and a Maserati in heaven as if all God can do is acquiesce to our greed. Instead, what we see is that if we are faithful with what he's entrusted to us today, the time, the abilities, The opportunities, the responsibilities he's given you access to today, if you're faithful with them, then you will have more responsibility in the kingdom of heaven, in the life to come when we come back here to work alongside of him and rule alongside of him. And before you go, I don't want more responsibility, I want to relax. Remember, this is responsibility that's free of the curse. So the work of your hands is going to be fulfilling. It's going to mean that your life will matter. It will have influence in the life to come. That's exciting. That's the second reason. One, why does our work matter? Because it's an act of worship. Two, why does our work matter? Because the responsibility that we show today will influence the responsibility we are given in the life to come. Third reason. Dallas Willard calls this life training for reigning and as as cheesy as that sounds i mean think about this for a moment what we do today the way that we live the way that we work with integrity and honesty the ways that we develop a sense of responsibility that even when nobody's looking we are going to be working hard we're going to be responsible And we are going to be respectful and loving. And all of those other character traits that you would hope are reflected by a Christ follower. You would hope are reflected by an image bearer of God. Those kind of traits are things that we're going to bring with us. We can't bring what we accumulate on this planet. All we can bring are the relationships that we make and who we are. We bring our character with us into the afterlife. So in many ways, why does our work matter today? Because you are being shaped and molded into the partner that God is going to have in eternity to move the world forward. Does that make sense? So three reasons, and I'm sure there's others. It's an act of worship. The responsibility that we show today will be met with greater responsibility in the life to come. And this is practice for an eternity of reigning alongside God. In moving his world forward. That's why our work matters. And we invite the worship team to come forward. But here's the point this morning. We are not looking at eternity as, you know, escaping God's creation. We look at eternity as a restoration of God's original plan all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2 that we would be his image bearers and we would partner with him in moving the world forward. That's what's coming. Yes, we will go to heaven and then we will come back and we will spend the rest of eternity reigning alongside God and worshiping him with our lips and with our bodies and with our work. And what we do today is a preparation for that. So may we not look down on the days of small beginnings. May we not begrudge having to go to school May we not begrudge the job that feels like a dead-end job we don't really care all that much about. May we give ourselves to it as if we are worshiping God. And Father God, help yourself to our lives. Would you give us a new understanding of the responsibility you've placed before us? For my my retired brothers and sisters, would you help them to recognize the responsibilities even now and the opportunities that they have to be a light to the younger ones like myself who are coming behind them, who who are probably going to make a lot of the mistakes that they made themselves. And I pray that you would breathe new life into their bodies, that in the time that they have, they would be investing in the generations to come. And Father, for those of us who are raising children and those of us who are coming alongside children and those of us who are coming alongside those who are raising children in our home, would you give us wisdom in how we pour into and support one another as we raise the next generation? And Father, God, thank you that you made us to work. Thank you that we get to worship you through our work. And I pray that we would find new meaning and new excitement in giving, us, giving it our all as an act of worship to you. Shape us and mold us into men and women who can be your partners in reigning in the life to come. And Jesus, we invite you to come in your timing and in your way, like that thief in the night, may we be found ready for you to come. And I pray that our neighbors, our family members, our coworkers and our, our, our fellow students would come to know you and call you Lord on the day you come back. Help yourself to our lives, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.